You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as Yahweh had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one-half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only two cities to dwell in, with their pasture lands, for their livestock, and their substance. The people of Israel did as Yahweh commanded Moses, they allotted the land. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite said to him, You know what Yahweh said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of Yahweh, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again, as it was in my heart. But my brothers, who went up with me, made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed Yahweh my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed Yahweh my God. And now, behold, Yahweh has kept me alive, just as he said these forty-five years since the time that Yahweh spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the darkness. And now, behold, I am this day eighty-five years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country, of which Yahweh spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there, with great fortified cities. It may be that Yahweh will be with me, and I shall drive them out, just as Yahweh said. Then Joshua blessed him, and gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Jephunneh for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet. I am, as per usual, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 692 of this podcast. Today is Monday, August 21st, 2023. This chapter, this Joshua 14 reading that we just went through, we just considered as we read it. This chapter here is a good reminder to take the long view. 40 years, 40 years plus, Caleb's not a young man, not a young man. He's 85 in this chapter. 
85 years old, and he was middle-aged when he was sent out by Moses to spy Canaan and to bring back, as he says, a report that was in his heart. He spoke from the abundance of his heart about what it is that he saw. He didn't just say the right words. He didn't just recite what it is that was expected of him. He didn't begrudgingly tell the truth. No, no, it was in his heart. He wanted to say this thing. He wanted them to know that this is a good land and God can give it to us like he has said he will. Here he is reminding Joshua because maybe he is not sure if the deal is still good. Yeah, there was a promise, but people break promises. Yeah, there was a promise, but that was Moses and Moses is gone now. And now it's Joshua who's in charge. And so the man to talk with is Joshua. And there's a certain tone between Caleb and Joshua, which is assertive and perhaps possibly not trusting without reservation that Joshua is going to honor the commitment that was made to Caleb. You were there. You heard. You saw. Now, on the one hand, you might say, well, come on, Caleb. You know who you're dealing with. You know who you're talking with. But a whole generation, their whole generation, wandered in the desert until all of them had passed away. All the fighting men who had come up out of Egypt had passed away, had died in the desert, their bodies falling in the wilderness. That kind of a circumstance or a context in which to live for 40 years, even if you're a faithful man, is liable to express itself or have an effect or erode your regard for mankind, perhaps, possibly, if you had a rather rosy view at the beginning, not so at the end. I wonder, and this is speculative, but I wonder if Joshua and Caleb were taken aback, if they were surprised. I wonder if there was a period of disillusionment. Who do I trust? Can I trust anybody? After the other 10 spies brought back bad reports, when the people of Israel, the men of Israel, heard the report of the 10 spies and of the two and decided to listen to the 10 spies and their bad report and started murmuring about picking up stones to stone Joshua and Caleb. There's a tense moment. There's a scary experience for you. Traumatic experience, quite probably. But they were going to elect new leaders to bring them back to Egypt, perhaps. I wonder if Caleb and Joshua didn't spend a lot of quiet evenings pondering that, replaying it in their heads, thinking back to if they could have said things differently, if they could have perhaps persuaded, if they had gone about it a different way, if they'd had more credibility or if they'd earned people's trust more through their own behavior. But then again, they probably, if they went that route, thought to themselves, who would have more credibility? Who should have earned more trust than God himself in what these Men, this whole generation, the rest of our generation, except for us, saw God do to bring us out of Egypt and to bring us to the edge of Canaan. Who would have more credibility than God? And yet these men didn't believe God. And that was probably how they slept at night. That's probably how they reconciled themselves to the outcome of wandering in the desert for four decades until all the men of their generation had fallen dead 
their bodies littering the wilderness. But here is Caleb saying, I'm as strong as I ever was. I'm as strong as I was 40 years ago, which you can just hear. I know the type from Eastern Montana, ranchers, farmers, more typically ranchers. They stay active. They get after it. They walk their fence line. They get out there. They double check. They feed. They water. They move the cattle around very often with some Australian shepherd or the like close by, trailing them, running just slightly ahead, panting, happy as can be. I know the type. I'm as strong as I was 40 years ago. I can do this. Put me in, coach. Give me this inheritance of mine that I've been looking forward to for so long. And then what's great too is you have this one particular place. It's not just anywhere. It's this one specific place that is going to be Caleb's inheritance. And this one specific place is named after the greatest man among the Anakim. Now, who are the Anakim? The Anakim are the giants. They're the offspring, it would seem, of the sons of God and the daughters of men. These are some kind of a hybrid or mutated strain, some kind of a corrupted type of person, a corrupted race. Not that there's anything wrong with being especially tall, but these guys are tall because their fathers were the sons of God and their mothers were the daughters of men, I believe we read about in Genesis chapter 6. In those days and also afterward, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took any of them that they wanted to have as wives. And they went into them and got children by them. That's who these Anakim are. And among the giants, the greatest of them was a certain Arba, it says. And here, Hebron was formerly known as Kiriath Arba. So it was the place named after not just any of the Anakim, but the greatest of them. And that's where Caleb wants to go. That's what he wants to possess. And it doesn't go without saying, at that age, at 85, it doesn't go without saying that you can do it, you can handle it. So he does say, I'm as strong as I ever was. And of course, he's not going to do it single-handedly, but he's going to go as the head of a household, as the head of a family with sons, grandsons, I'm sure, by this point, at 85, perhaps servants as well. They're going to handle business. They're going to take care of it. They'll clear the land. But then the very last verse, what's interesting is that this is presented as a good thing. It's not presented as an evil thing that Israel generally or that Joshua and Caleb specifically are making war. They're fighting battles. They're killing the enemy. It's not presented as an evil thing, although those who are being fought against, made war against, killed, are said to be evil. But all the same, it is a good thing. It's an even better thing when the land has rest from war. That's a good thing. At least I can't read it any other way. Go in, take possession, get it done, and then rest. Now, if all you ever do is rest, that's not so good. But if you have done what you came to do, what you were supposed to do, you did your good deed, you were obedient, you were faithful, 
enjoying the fruits of your labors, enjoying the blessing, that's a sweet, sweet thing. Now you're really going to sleep well tonight. Now you're really going to enjoy when you get to sit down. If you've been getting after it, you've been getting up and working hard and fighting and hustling. And you've got to think, 45 years to turn this over in his head. He had seen the land. He was one of the spies. And Joshua had seen the land too, because he was another one of the spies. Out of 12 spies, these guys made up two. They're the only two left. The only two still alive for this special covert operation to spy out the land. These are like special operations guys. They checked it out. They know what they're getting into. They've had 40 plus years to think about it, to plan out, not just how would I go about waging that war, fighting those battles, from which direction would I attack, how would I fight, if God leaves it up to me, here's going to be my strategy, here are my tactics, let's work on them, let's develop them. Let's teach them to the next generation and the next generation so they're ready, right? We're going to run drills and we're going to be ready to actually fight and to execute when the time comes. 40 plus years of that. Here's the chance. And then also 40 plus years of daydreaming, probably about on the other end of the battles and the war, the fighting, the killing, rest. If Caleb is as strong as he was 45 years prior, that implies he has not been so well rested. He's been staying in shape. He's been working. He's been working out. He's been exercising. He's been running drills. He's been training. He has kept himself sharp through activity. He's not just been sitting around. Why? Because he doesn't want to rest until he has seen the fulfillment of the promise. That's pretty exemplary. That's pretty fantastic. Take the long view. Look at Caleb and take the long view that bearing fruit in your season, like Proverbs talks about, like Psalms talks about, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on it he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted beside streams of water who yields fruit in his season. What season is that? Well, maybe 85 years old. Maybe. And maybe the whole rest of your generation is faithless and they wander in the wilderness and die and you have to just endure and just stay sharp. Keep on believing and keep on working and preparing for the fulfillment of the promise of God. Maybe that's what you do. You do that for 40 plus years before you see God's promises fulfilled. You know what? If that's what it's going to be, then be ready for the long haul. Tomorrow is not promised. And so on the one hand, you should live every day as if it is your last. Marcus Aurelius would say, you should always regard yourself as dying. You're alive, but you're always dying because at any moment, something could happen. And that's it. That's the end of your life. And don't grieve that because you're not losing anything that was yours As in, there was no promise or guarantee that you would not die. In fact, when we read God's word, it says it's appointed once for a man to die. And then comes the judgment. Now, we know as Christians that those whose names are written in the book of life, they will live forever, eternally. That's wonderful. 
That is fantastic. And so in some sense, you should be thinking forward to eternity, even if you were going to die tomorrow. You do have a long game. If you're in Christ, you have a long game to play. You have a lot to look forward to. You have your whole life ahead of you. And if you're not in Christ, well, it would probably be a good idea for you to think about your own mortality a bit more. Don't avoid it. There is no avoiding it. Ignorance is no defense. But what is better? What's wiser? What's more likely to produce a benefit and keep you fresh and keep you strong and sharp, looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises? That is what. Now consider with me, if you will, a quote from Marcus Aurelius, speaking of, from Meditations, Book 8, Meditations written circa 121 to 180 AD, the last of the five good emperors of Rome, Marcus Aurelius, philosopher as well as emperor. He who does not know what the world is does not know where he is. And he who does not know for what purpose the world exists does not know who he is nor what the world is. But he who has failed in any one of these things could not even say for what purpose he exists himself. What then dost thou think of him who avoids or seeks the praise of those who applaud, of men who know not either where they are or who they are? Here we have basically the importance of being grounded in time and space and context. What is your context? If you don't have that, then you're lost. And guess what? Most people are lost. They do not understand their context. They don't know what the world is. They don't know for what purpose the world exists. They don't know who they are. They don't know where they are. Therefore, if they praise you or if they hate you, why do you let that bother you so much? Marcus Aurelius would say, you shouldn't. Don't. Instead, you should focus up on making sure that you know what the world is, where you are, what the purpose of the world is, who you are. Focus up on succeeding in that regard, and you will be wise, and you will have an easier time being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. If you focus on these things, you will appreciate in a new light Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the psalmist writes, the world and its inhabitants. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That subduing bit is male and female. That being fruitful and multiplying thing is male and female. Those who want to erase male and female, by extension, hate humanity, and they want to erase humanity, or they want to undo and unravel and reverse the fulfillment of the dominion mandate to this point. They don't like it, and the reason they don't like it is because they believe a very different account about what the world is, where we find ourselves, what the purpose of the world is. He who does not know for what purpose the world exists does not know who he is, nor what the world is. Which is to say, for the Christian, if people who don't know Christ, who reject his word, they don't know his word or they've read it and they scoff at it, they mock it, they reject it. If they say to you, the purpose of the world is fill in the blank, 
I'll be very surprised. Instead, they just don't like what you're doing. If you're acting in a focused, purposeful way because you understand what the world is for, you have a sense of context, time, and space in which you reside that informs your activity, your action, your work, your preparations, your speaking, your relating, your organizing, your resting, for that matter, too, of course. If they have rejected all of that, they are going to also resent the products of that mindset, which is to say the dominion mandate insofar as it is an obedient response to God blessing the man and the woman, the man and his wife, and saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Insofar as that was obedience, they resent the obedience in its effects. They don't understand the obedience and its effects, but they also, in having rejected the prerequisite, which was the command, which was the purpose of God, having created the male and female in his image, after his likeness, having rejected that, they don't understand, nor do they respect, if you have a regard for something like human rights. And by that I mean, we have a right to do what God tells us to do. We have a right to fulfill the dominion mandate. Now, you might say, uh, yeah, but not everybody can be just doing whatever they want with the earth, and that's why we have property rights. And that's also not coincidentally why the same people who are so on about climate change and free market capitalism and republicanism and nationalism, that's why they also want to abolish all of the above because they're at odds with this idea of dominion. If you trace it back, what you'll find is, humanly speaking, we have people who are envious. However much they own, however much they buy, however much they please themselves with the enjoyment of, they're insatiable. It will never be enough. They will always want more. And so they've come up with a plan by which they will supposedly bring about world peace and an end to poverty and want, but it's a lie. What they're really trying to bring an end to is the turmoil within themselves. They're trying to bring an end to the internal conflict. They're trying to bring an end to the poverty in their own souls. However rich they are, however many private jets, fast cars, loose women, big seaside homes, they can lay claim to, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? They feel so guilty. They feel so bad. But what do they do? Do they sell all their possessions and give it away to the poor? Do they lead by example? No, they don't. They insist disingenuously that they must get richer and richer and richer in order to bring an end to the poverty of others. All the while, passing and enacting policies, legislative agendas, protocols, which would say to middle-class citizens of this or that nation, let's say, for instance, the United States, you are the greedy one. You're the greedy one if you want to be able to go to the grocery store and buy just whatever you want to feed you and your family and your friends who you love in a genuine way. They say they're going to make that easier, but they aren't making it easier. They're only making it more difficult. And they're violating every commandment of God along the way, because actually that's the point. 
Their aspiration is to play God and to become gods. They are the kings of the nations who plot and conspire with one another to break God's bounds asunder. They want to liberate themselves from God so that they can say that they are gods. And do you know what God thinks of that? He sits in heaven, he observes, he listens, he tunes in, and he laughs. He thinks that's rather cute. He's not intimidated. He's not nervous. He's not anxious. He's not wringing his hands. No, no, he thinks, oh, that's cute. (laughs) Eh, Okay, I'll give you a little more time. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see about that. But here's the thing. For us to be so easily manipulated by what is purported to be the popular thing, that's part of how these very wealthy, very influential, very ambitious men in particular take us captive. We fall into a trap, being afraid of the opinions of men. How did that work out for Joshua and Caleb's generation? And how did it work out for Joshua and Caleb? Here we have Caleb at 85 years old, still going strong, still sharp. He hasn't forgotten about the promise. He's chomping at the bit. It's about all he could think about for 45 years now. Now it's time. Joshua, you remember, you were there. You heard him. Don't you go reneging on the promise Moses made to me. I'm here to collect. The only reason he's there to collect at all, 45 years on, is because he did not put over much stock in the opinions of those who were ignoring and rejecting and choosing to disbelieve stubbornly what the world is, where they were, for what purpose the world exists, who they were. Caleb clearly was like, yeah, whatever. You know what? I saw, I saw, I know, I was there. I scouted out the land. It is an exceedingly good land. I've also seen God deliver on his promises. I trust that God is going to deliver on his promises. I don't know what's wrong with you jokers, but you're wrong. I'm going to go with God on this. But let's talk about, and let's speak to those who say we should have a default position of trust towards people. Let's talk briefly about the lyrics to In Christ Alone, My Hope is Found. We sang this song as a church during our time of worship yesterday morning, Sunday morning. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. That's the first verse. But I got to thinking as I was reading the words, and I don't always sing, by the way. I have, people tell me, a good voice, but I don't always sing. Sometimes I like to just stand there and sit there and read the lyrics and listen to other people singing. But I like sometimes to just think about the words. And I was thinking about the words of the last verse. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Now think with me for a moment about those who bandy about the dismissive, the smear, 
That sounds like a conspiracy theory. Yeah, that guy, he's kind of a conspiracy guy. He's kind of a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, I think you're getting a little carried away. To talk about people conspiring behind the scenes in a corrupt way, yeah, you need to be more trusting. People don't conspire. No, no. No, most people are good. I wouldn't worry about it. There's nothing you can do about it anyways. These are the kinds of things that are in circulation in our churches in America. These are the kinds of attitudes which have entrenched themselves in far too many cases because we don't want to do anything about what we could do something about. And so don't bring me a bad report. And then what we mean, right? What we mean by a bad report is something very similar to the report of the 10 twelfths of the spies who came back after Moses sent them into Canaan. Don't bring back a bad report of bad news when we know that the giants are too strong for us. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. Also, please don't bring us a bad report that there are giants in the land, but it's an exceedingly good land because then we're going to have trouble with contentment. And then we're not going to be nearly so good at Christians as we like to think of ourselves, like we want to tell ourselves and one another we are. Don't bring a bad report. And by bad report, I mean there are giants in the land. Yeah, no, I don't buy it. Because either A, there are giants in the land, and therefore we can't take it, or B, there are giants in the land and we can take it. Those really are the only two options, if there are, in fact, giants in the land. If we can take it, well, then I'm going to have to face my fears. I'm going to have to face my own faithlessness. And I don't want to do that. I'd rather not, actually. Or what? What do we mean? When we sing this song, we sing this song, we say no guilt in life. And I by no means want to put a guilt trip on anybody, but I do want us to be sobered about rightly handling the word of truth. And that means, yes, you don't spread a false report. Do your diligence and double check and make sure whether these things are actually so. But then here's the trouble I have. When people try to do that in community and they say, well, did you consider this? And have you read this? And have you heard that? And what do we think? Is this true? Could it be true? Could there be any, any validity to that? Does that check out? Should we do something about it if it is true? All too often, they're silenced and they're told, enough. That's not what we're here for. We're not here to do anything about these problems. You're just upsetting people. We go the wrong way about it to try and live a life without guilt or fear when we say, the way we're going to accomplish that is to ignore what the world is, why it's here, why we're here, where are we, who are we, what are we supposed to be about, in favor of what? Earning or maintaining the applause of others who have similarly rejected what God's word says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And so he created them in his image, after his likeness, male and female, he created them. Jesus commands my destiny. Okay, good, excellent, wonderful. Let's sing that. Let's sing it at the top of our lungs, but let's not sing that in such a way that when the cattle cars come clipping along the tracks behind our church, we're going to try and drown out the cries for help from those who are being taken to the slaughter. Those, Proverbs says, we are to rescue. Those 
God's word says we're to speak up on behalf of. That's what it means to do justice. Open your mouth, Proverbs 31 says. It's not just the bit about the Proverbs 31 woman, the excellent woman. It's also King Lemuel. Open your mouth. Speak up on behalf of the orphan, the widow, the poor who are being oppressed because that's a thing. They're having their rights trampled on. They're being deprived of their rights. Speak up on their behalf. Open your mouth. That's why it's not for the king, Olemwell, to drink wine and strong drink and forget justice. And yet we can forget justice well enough without wine or strong drink, as we demonstrate on a regular basis. So many of the folks who say, it's not good for Christians to drink, nevertheless, do the very thing by any other means for getting justice, which was the whole point. That was the whole point of why Lemuel's mother said, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, to drink wine and strong drink and so forget justice. We say, okay, yeah, let's not drink wine or strong drink. But, you know, there's a football game on this afternoon. And, you know, the latest fill-in-the-blank movie is playing in theaters right now. And, you know, I am busy trying to plan and prepare for my vacation. And I just don't have time. I, I don't have time. And all those things might be totally legitimate for you to dabble in, but the dose makes the poison. And if the reason why you are pursuing those things one after another, filling up every spare moment of your schedule is so that you can forget justice, shame on you. You should feel ashamed. You should feel guilty because you are guilty. Jesus is not commanding your obedience. If you're not obeying, he might be commanding and you're not obeying, in which case, do you actually love him? Or is this a farce? Do you sing this song and mean a word of it? Or do you just sing along because you're trying to get the applause of other people who are singing along? That's an important thing to mull over. Are you singing for God's pleasure and for your benefit? Well, if so... Meaning these words must at a certain point collide with the power of hell and the scheme of man. There's no getting around the power of hell, the scheme of man in this song, implying that such things exist is not the same thing as saying you should be afraid of them, but be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Jesus commands, speaking of commands, Jesus commands, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. If you say there is no such thing, as serpents. There is no such thing as hell. There is no such thing as scheming. That's how I don't worry about it. I just deny that these things exist. Shame on you. You should be ashamed. You're not rightly handling the word of truth. Any better than the guy who falsely spreads reports that he should know better than to report as factual when they're not factual. They're very much lacking in credibility. But the trouble here is we are fish on hooks. In too many cases, when we talk about spreading a false report, what we mean is don't spread what the supposedly independent third-party fact checkers have declared mostly false. We mean don't spread a report that wouldn't appear in the mainstream corporate media news outlets that so many people are funneled into reading and listening to and watching. You don't think that the people who put out the news, get together and plan what it is that they're going to cover and not cover and how they're going to cover, what they're going to cover. You don't think they plan that out? You don't think they have any motivations, any priorities when they do so? You're not being wise as serpents. If so, now just to say, 
that much and no more wouldn't get us very far. But if we say that much and then we realize that apart from God, man is not inherently good. Apart from God, we don't have hope. Apart from God, we don't have wisdom. Apart from God, we don't have righteousness. Apart from God, we don't do what is good. We do what is evil continually. We follow our hearts and our hearts being wicked lead us into every kind of wickedness, every kind of depravity, passive and active. You don't think the most powerful godless people, the most wealthy godless people get together and plan out their godlessness to make it as successful and efficient and scientific and professional as possible? Think again. Men do scheme. Hell does have power, but the schemes of man will not prevail against the promises of God. The power of hell will not prevail against the power of Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the appropriate way to approach these things. Don't panic. Don't freak out. Do rightly handle the word of truth. So don't spread a false report about somebody destroying their reputation because you might be actually spreading a false report that is derived from the schemes of man. But also don't dismiss a report of corrupt actions untrue statements having been planned in advance to promote certain agendas that are bad for you, bad for other innocent people, don't dismiss that as a false report because if those are true statements, what you're actually doing is you are spreading a false report about the people who are saying, hey, listen, we got a problem. The game is afoot. Moriarty is trying to kick off a world war here. So he gets very wealthy and very powerful because he's bought up munitions factories for instance. He's going to be selling the bombs and the bullets to both sides. Hey, hey, if you say, oh, that's a false report, but you don't know that it's a false report, you just want it to be a false report, you're just emotivizing your conclusions. If it actually is a true report, then what you've done is you have slandered the person who was raising the warning. You've slandered them just like you are accusing them of having slandered others. But if they're not slandering others, if they are bringing a true report, a good report, yes, there are giants in the land, but we can take them. God has given them into our hands. If you say that the two spies coming back must be wrong because there's only two of them after all, and there's 10, well, you are one falling into a logical fallacy, argumentum ad populum. If you claim You have the authority as the assembly of Israel to command them to be quiet, to be silent, to say no more about it. Shut up already. Stop arguing the case or we'll kill you. Therefore, we're right because we can command you to be quiet. Well, then you've just made an argument from authority, which is not particularly persuasive when God has more authority. And he is the one who said, I'm going to give this land to you for possession and drive out these nations, nations which are stronger than you are. They are. Yeah, you're right. They are stronger. But God is stronger still. Consider with me a story from Insider. Katie Hawkinson is the one who wrote it. It looks like I found it on MSN.com. Climate scientists say they're balancing a strange mix of grief and hope as climate-related disasters continue to prove their predictions right. Here we have a picture, the featured image, from the Maui and Yellowknife fires to Hurricane Hillary threatening Southern California this week alone has brought a series of climate-related disasters to the United States and Canada. The picture is of burned-out cars and homes and trees in Hawaii, in Maui, 
And the low information folks who don't understand what the world is, why it's here, why we're here, what we're supposed to be about, the low information folks who either don't know because they haven't been told or they don't know because they are in a place of disbelief, unbelief in what God's word says. They've heard it, but they don't believe it. They reject it. They're going to look at this picture and they're going to think, man, yeah, this climate change business is no joke. This is an existential crisis. This is life or death that the climate is changing because we're burning fossil fuels. Now, wait a second. Let's back up a moment. Climate scientists say they're feeling a mix of grief, fear, and hope in response to recent disasters. Prove to me that this fire is the result of me driving an internal combustion engine vehicle. Prove to me that this fire is the result of coal-fired power plants generating the electricity that keeps the lights on, charges my phone, allows my wife to cook breakfast in the morning before we start our homeschooling for the day. Prove to me that this is not the result of ineptitude by the response of those who were in positions of authority. The emergency response folks, the folks who were supposed to call out the water and bring it to bear to fight the fire, the people who were supposed to turn on the sirens to warn people to evacuate because there's a fire. Prove to me that this disaster in Hawaii is not the fault of utilities companies who failed to maintain a reliable power grid. Some of the reports that I'm hearing, and I am not saying I know this firsthand, and I'm not saying that the reports are for sure accurate, but some of the reports that I'm hearing are that this fire was caused by downed power lines. After the fire was caused by that, the person, the official, government official, who was responsible for releasing water to fight the fire, delayed in doing so because he's all about equity and he needed to check with local farmers first. Is that due to climate change? Is that what qualifies as climate change related? If it turned out, let's just say, for the sake of argument, if it turned out that the utilities companies being told you must go to renewable energy sources, you must go to solar, you must go to wind and hydro, if they were so focused on keeping up with regulations and installing renewable energy generation equipment, that they failed to maintain the power lines. If the guy responsible for releasing the water to combat the fire was so focused on equity that he failed to bring water to fight the fire and put it out when it was still small, if the person responsible for turning on the alarm delayed in turning on the alarm, and that's why so many people didn't evacuate, and that's why they died in their homes, in their cars, in the fields, if all of these things together actually are a result of DEI, letters being rearranged to DIE, if these are actually not climate change related, but if these are, at the end of the day, a result of woke policies in Maui, being implemented in Maui, woke folk being put in positions of power, which they are inept to faithfully execute the duties thereof in, well, then what, right? Who's going to report on it? Who's going to bring us that story and then what will climate scientists so-called say? They're balancing 
A strange mix of grief and hope. Why? What do they hope? They hope that their predictions will continue to be proven right. They're hoping that their predictions will be validated. Now, let's just stop for a moment. And here's where I will fly right into the teeth of people who are ready to bite down hard on dismissing any such talk as conspiracy theory. If you put radical activists in a position where they can prove their predictions right, because what they actually want is not to combat climate change, but to abolish free market capitalism and self-determination by individuals and by nations. If you put radical activists in a place of opportunity and means and motive is already there for them to make an example out of this picturesque community in Hawaii, what if they start trying to prove their predictions right by setting a fire and making sure that it is as deadly and destructive as possible just so they can force through some bogus claim that this is due to climate change? Now, keep in mind, right? One to two degrees temperature swing is the claim. That's the claim. One to two degrees temperature shift is not just happening naturally, no, no, not just due to volcanic activity or solar flares waxing and waning, but due to man burning fossil fuels to generate electricity and power our transportation systems. You mean to tell me one or two degrees temperature change caused this whole community to burn up? How did that work, right? One to two degrees shift and all of our towns, all of our neighborhoods, all of our cars, all of our children and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers are going to die in fires like the one in Maui. Is that what you mean to tell me? Unless I give all of my political power, all of my money, all of my economic opportunity, all of my concern and consideration of individual rights over to the likes of Klaus Schwab and George Soros. Is that what you're trying to suggest? I feel like that's what you're trying to suggest. If only we would have listened more of us to Al Gore and now we have to censor the conservatives online because the conservatives online are literally killing people so long as they deny that anthropomorphic climate change, man-centered, man-caused climate change is a crisis. I suggest to you, there are definitely people, if there are people who are willing to lay down in the middle of a busy street to try and stop traffic to protest climate change, if there are people who are willing to throw cans of soup on famous works of art, which have nothing whatsoever to do with climate change, except to get your attention. If there are people who are crazy enough to write books about how to blow up oil and gas pipelines to disrupt our ability to transport and refine and utilize fossil fuels. If there are people who are crazy enough to call abortion women's health care, there are also people who are crazy enough to light the fire and then make sure that it doesn't get put out and make sure that people don't get warned in time and be ready with the cameras and the microphones and the narratives to push the agenda that they've been pursuing 
for decades and even for a century to implement communism globally. It's not about climate change. It's about free market capitalism to these people. Climate change is just the bogeyman because if they just said, hey, listen, times are tough, but actually times weren't so tough for you in your country, in your state, in your city, if times were actually pretty good, you work, you earn, you have a home, you enjoy the wife of your youth, you enjoy seeing your children come of age and get married and have children after them, you enjoy the grandchildren coming over. If you're in that kind of a spot and times are good, your retirement fund is looking healthy, it's looking like you'll be able to retire on time, comfortably travel around the country, see your children and your grandkids if they've moved, see places you've only read about, but you would love to visit in person. If you're in that kind of a condition, well, you're not going to be interested in radical redistribution of wealth and power. But if we brainwash you and your whole community and everybody around the world to believing every bit of profit you have earned through your toil for your whole life long was ill-gotten gain, you're a bad person, you're a racist, sexist, homophobe, misogynist, science denier, supposedly. If we convince everybody that the problem is you, well then, what we've done is we have created a pretext. We've created a supposedly just cause for going and taking what belongs to you and doing whatever we need to do with you to prevent you from arguing in your own defense. Destroy your credibility and call it hate speech if you argue against these things forcefully and all the more. The more successfully you would argue against these things, these initiatives online, the more important it is to derate your post reach. Let's keep traffic from flowing to your website if you create your own website or to your account if you're on social media. Let's demonetize your content if you were using the wealth that you earn from people viewing your content to then fund future initiatives. Let's just demonetize that. We'll call it hate speech. We'll call it whatever we have to, to shut you up, to shut you down. You don't think that is the result of planning? You think that's all just random chance that conservatives are continually being censored and there are ever louder calls for censorship? There are ever more complicated schemes for trying to marginalize conservative thought online? And by conservative, I mean if you believe that there are only two genders, male, female, if you believe that men should marry women and women should marry men and they should be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, if you're trying to conserve that, if you're a Christian and you're saying, hey, it's wrong what's being done to children, it's wrong what's being done to the reputation of innocent men and women, if they don't want to participate in certain things, if they don't want to affirm certain things, you don't think there's planning involved? You don't think there's scheming involved? Of course there is. And the primary reason why you don't want to hear that, why you don't want anybody to talk like that, is because you love the applause of people who don't know what the world is. They don't know who they are. They don't know what the world is. They don't understand any of this. The people who want to just dismiss all of that would not, I dare say, have the respect of a man like Joshua or a man like Caleb. Consider with me, though, America Insider Story by David Ruffle. Climate scientist blows the lid off the manufactured consensus. Here we have in view Dr. John Clauser and Judith Curry. And 
I'll play for you cut one here of an interview with the latter conducted by John Stossel embedded in the link, which will be in the description for this podcast episode. Go check it out. But here it is, cut one, for the first couple of minutes of this back and forth. Take a listen. Climate change is a crisis, we're told. And anyone who's skeptical or raises any questions about the alarm is dismissed. I'm going to bring out two people who agree with you, climate skeptic. I'm also going to bring out 96 other scientists. <laughs> the smug media mock so-called skeptics. And what is the overwhelming view of the entire scientific community? Well. <laughs> okay. The consensus is so strong, there shouldn't even be a debate. This whole debate should not have happened. I apologize to everyone at home. Climate alarmists claim there's an... Overwhelming scientific consensus. But... It's a manufactured consensus. Researcher Judith Curry says climate scientists have an incentive to exaggerate risk. Why? What's in it for them? Fame and fortune. <laughs> she knows about that because she once spread alarm about climate change. And the media loved her when she published this study saying there was an increase in hurricane intensity. We found that the percent of Category 4 and 5 hurricanes had doubled. Really? Doubled? And so this was picked up by the media. The alarmists said, oh, here's the way to do it. It being, get the public alarmed. Climate change is making hurricanes stronger and more destructive. Tie extreme weather events to global warming. So this hysteria is your fault. Well, sort of. <laughs> Not really. They, they, they would have picked up on it on anyways. But Curry's more intense hurricanes gave them fuel. I was adopted by the environmental advocacy groups and the alarmists, and I was treated like a rock star. What does that mean, treated like a rock oh star? Oh my God, I was flown all over the place to meet with politicians and to give these talks and lots of media attention. But then some researchers pointed out gaps in her research, years with low levels of hurricanes. So like a good scientist, I went in and investigated all that stuff. She realized her critics were right. Part of it was bad data. Part of it is natural climate variability. So you're the unusual researcher who looks at criticism of your paper and actually concluded they had a point. They had a point for sure. Then the ClimateGate scandal taught Curry that many researchers aren't so open-minded. Leaked emails showed university climate scientists conspiring to hide data. It showed a lot of really ugly things. Um, avoiding Freedom of Information Act requests, trying to get journal editors fired from their job. One email read, if you think this Yale professor is in the skeptics camp, get him ousted. Seeing emails like that made Curry realize that climate change fanatics had corrupted the science because there's a climate change industry set up to reward alarmism. Okay, we'll stop there. That's three minutes in. It's a seven and a half minute almost video. Watch the rest, but let's comment. This woman appears very credible and who would know better? She told the media what they wanted to hear. The media then put that on blast. Keep in mind that the media gets its funding from those who are very wealthy, who own and buy and sell media entities, but then also 
there's an advertising component. And so when advertisers run commercials, they are paying basically for an audience. However big your audience is, that's how much revenue is going to be generated. If my little podcast, for instance, makes $14 per thousand listens to the Spotify for Podcasters ad placement at the beginning of every episode, when that advertisement is listened to on Spotify, $10.99 per thousand on any other podcast, well then, if I have a million listens per episode, I'm making pretty good money. But I don't, of course. So if it's a few hundred, I make significantly less. It works very similarly for corporate news media. If they are getting millions of clicks, millions of viewers, then they sell advertising at a premium. And so there's an incentive. But also, too, you've got to keep in mind that if very wealthy people are on board with promoting climate change hysteria and alarmism, in part because they have diversified their portfolio and invested heavily in products and services and politicians who are predicated on climate change hysteria driving purchasing decisions, voting patterns. If the science turns out to be, well, wait a second, ah, you know what, let's double check the math. So also there's a lot of credibility that can be lost. There's a lot of purchasing decision and political reality that can shift. It can boomerang, basically, if they have invested heavily in corporations that are selling products and services predicated on climate change hysteria. And then all of a sudden people don't need to buy that because it's more expensive. They don't need to pay for that because it's unnecessary. And as a matter of fact, they don't want to watch that program anymore. They don't want to read that newspaper anymore. They don't want to read that magazine anymore because they weren't careful. They didn't vet this. They didn't fact check it. They didn't double check. They didn't consult other sources ahead of time. They didn't do their due diligence as journalists supposedly if it turns out to be propaganda. Well, there's a lot of reason to make sure that those who would have credibility to be able to answer these things have their credibility destroyed. And so then the, as she says, manufactured consensus must turn its attention to destroying the credibility of naysayers. Why? Because the naysayers may expose the vulnerability of very wealthy people who have invested heavily and stand to lose a lot of money. Entities and institutions that have leveraged all of their credibility stand to lose a lot of credibility if climate change is not an emergency, if it's not driven by human activity, if it's not an existential crisis, an immediate crisis, from the standpoint of political power and credibility, from the standpoint of economic activity, investment patterns, there is every reason in the world to drop somebody who was a darling like a hot potato. And that's what we're being told here. Just like there might be reasons for activists to start skewing the data, even creating proof, manufacturing proof and evidence, creating situations which then they can spin to solidify their position, vice versa. If the second who comes to examine the first to state their case 
makes a compelling argument. They present a good, strong counter argument, a counterfactual evidence that this is not so. They need to be censored. They need to be silenced online and in the academy and in the church, I'm sorry to say. If we don't want to spread false reports, that's good. That's biblical. We should be careful about who all we deem as susceptible, capable of spreading a false report. What all constitutes a false report? If we're not equal opportunity guards against the spreading of a false report, then we're showing partiality. If we show partiality towards those who are already politically powerful, those who are already wealthy, we are sinning, actually. And that is also clear from God's word. If we are showing partiality towards those who are presented as poor and needy, and we automatically say that whatever they are going to be lifted out of poverty by, that must be the true report. We're showing partiality and we're in sin. What is informing our reception of these things, our evaluation, our assessment of these things? Consider with me one last story, and then I've got to run. I've got work to get to and the day to start in other regards. Chris Henlow reports at theblaze.com, man learns unforgettable lesson about electric vehicles on 1400 mile road trip. Biggest scam of modern times. August 17th, 2023. Here's what Enlow writes. And I quote, a Canadian man recently learned the hard way that electric vehicles have significant disadvantages compared to gas powered vehicles on July 27th. Dalbir Bala packed his wife and three children in his truck, a 2023 Ford F-150 Lightning Lariat that he purchased for $85,000 or $115,000 in Canadian currency in January for a business trip to Chicago, the CBC reported. Along the 1,400-mile trip from his home near Winnipeg to the Chicagoland area, Bala planned to stop at three charging stations. The truck's range, when fully charged, is about 320 miles. Bala's stop at the first station in Fargo, North Dakota, was successful, albeit inconvenient because it took more than two hours to recharge the battery to 90%. But at the second station in Albertville, Minnesota, Bala discovered a charging station that did not work. After unsuccessfully calling for help, Bala drove to a nearby charging station in Elk River, Minnesota, but that one didn't work either. With just 12 miles remaining on his battery, Bala made the decision to have his truck towed to a nearby Ford dealership where he also rented a gas-powered Toyota 4Runner to complete his trip to Chicago. He picked up his electric truck on the return trip. Now Bala is telling his story and warning other consumers about the problems with electric vehicles. Quote, people have to make the right choices. I want to tell everybody to read my story, he told Fox Business. Do your research before even thinking about it and make a wiser choice. The actual thing they promised is not even close, not even 50%. And once you buy it, you're stuck with it. And you have to carry huge losses to get rid of that. And nobody is there to help you. End quote. Now, I bring this to your attention because there are politicians and bureaucrats and media entities and very wealthy people who want to and are in the process of trying to make it so, make it to where you are not allowed to buy anything but an electric vehicle. If you want to buy a gas-powered vehicle, In the state of California, for instance, the California Air Regulatory Board has made their position clear. It will not be legal to manufacture, buy, sell internal combustion engine vehicles in the coming years. 
by the year 2035, to be more exact. They want to phase out, they say, phase out internal combustion engine vehicles by 2035. A significant portion of the rest of the United States automatically, by default, adopts whatever CARB puts out there. And why that matters is it's going to severely restrict your travel. Your ability to travel as an individual will be easily limited. And maybe that's partly the point. Maybe that's not a bug. Maybe it's a feature. If they haven't told us the truth on what the capacity, what the range is, what the capabilities are, if they haven't told the truth on that, what else are they not telling the truth on? Maybe what they want is to get everybody to move into the cities because they actually don't just want to reduce your carbon footprint. They want to reduce Earth's population. They want to reduce environmental impact more generally. Let's not have people living in the country. Let's not have people living in rural areas. Unless, of course, you're very, very wealthy. and You can afford to live off the grid. But then how far are we in that case from the mentality, the attitude of the eugenicists, the internationalists, the social Darwinists of a century ago? This seems to me to have all the fingerprints of those arrogant SOBs. You couple it with behavioral economics, engineered choice, persuasive technology. You put all these things together and what it all adds up to is you and I being herded to something like a slaughterhouse where at the minimum, our civil liberties, our right to self-determination, our capacity to fulfill the dominion mandate, the cultural mandate, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, will be very closely regulated and controlled, if not completely stopped, halted, curtailed. If that's the case, if that's what this is, shouldn't we know? Shouldn't we do something about it? Possibly, if there is anything to be done about it, even just on an individual, personal level, shouldn't we be making choices differently? Shouldn't we be working on building strong families, strong churches, strong communities at a local level? Shouldn't we get reacquainted with how to make decisions together, how to respect one another, how to love one another in person, face-to-face. And it's a lot harder to censor you in your free speech if you start having that speech in person. It's also more likely you're going to remember that the other person is a human being. When they talk back, when they question you, when they present their view of things, you're going to remember more easily that they are a human being. And that's something far too many of us have forgotten thanks to social media. In closing, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God, in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry at the final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. 
till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ. I'll stand. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I've got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.